This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sapanos. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Roxy Mooney. Dr. Roxy is the CEO and healthcare commercialization strategist of Legacy DNA and focuses on helping health tech innovators uncover their most profitable and viable market strategies from early adoption strategies to pivoting. Dr. Roxy has spoken at HIMSS and the Connected Health Conference and currently serves as an Associate Professor of Marketing at the Jack Welsh Management Institute. Dr. Roxy is also the international best-selling author of How Health Innovators Maximise Market Success, Strategies to Launch and Commercialise Healthcare Innovations, as well as a host of the CoIQ with Dr. Roxy podcast. Dr. Roxy shares with me today her journey over time, having travelled via the real world of business into academia and out again to having become a leading expert in healthcare innovation and commercialisation within the US market and now beyond. We talk through a range of topics and real world tested approaches that will greatly benefit startup founders and innovators within healthcare and what characteristics of founders can actually get in the way or increase the risk of failure if not addressed early enough. With the risk of failure in startup being around 95%, it's critical to the industry and to the world to learn from experience and work with advisors who have been there, done that, and or accrued so much knowledge from working with many people and teams so as to know what works and what is not going to work. Let's jump in. Well, hey, Roxy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to be here. Fantastic. And I really appreciate you staying up in the evening to join me today from Florida. How is life in Florida for you? Well, it's the wild, wild west here, right? (laughs) Florida is kind of anything goes. And unlike many places, many states and many countries, we've just kind of been a little wild throughout this whole COVID experience. (laughs) It's anything goes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's fair to say you're not alone. I think we can globally empathize with what's going on there at the moment. Let's talk about some positive stuff. Tell us about your journey. You've had a very interesting career that leads you into what you're doing now. What are the key things that you could share with us around the journey? So I'll start off kind of midpoint. So I went back to school after my daughter graduated from high school and went to college herself. I decided to go back to school and get my master's degree in leadership. And a couple of professors in that program had, I call it, started sprinkling the doctoral seeds and planting them and watering them throughout the entire program. And one of the things that was so interesting to me was that one of them, I said, why would you get a doctorate? What is that all about? And so he said that if he was consulting business and things weren't going well, he would just be able to teach more classes. And if things were going really well and he didn't want to teach, he wouldn't have to teach. Nobody was offended or upset by that. And then every year he would be able to take off a couple of months and just travel with his wife. And at that point, there was like, I want some of that in my life. So I decided to go back to school and get my doctorate in business. And you know that journey is kind of interesting as well. They ask you in the beginning, what is the business problem that you want to be married to for the next like five to seven years of your life? 
And for me, I had worked with a lot of early stage startups earlier in my career around the mid 2000s. And so I saw that we were on this explosion of innovation in healthcare. So it was really, really exciting. But I came across the statistic that 95% of innovations that are brought to market fail to reach any adequate level of customer adoption or financial success. And that really just struck me. And I decided at that point that I was going to make it my mission and my career to figure out what strategies and tactics innovators needed to be successful and what things that they needed to avoid or circumvent. And that's kind of led me to where I am now over the last seven years. I've been transitioning Legacy DNA, a healthcare marketing agency that I started in 2010 and transitioning that in building a second division within the company that's focused on innovation strategy and commercialization. And it's been a very exciting ride these last few years to come alongside health innovators, very similar to what you do, and help them be part of that 5% that succeeds. Yeah, I I wanted to sort of break that down because you've published a lot of papers and you hold a number of titles academically at the moment. Do you want to just share with us a couple of things that you're doing there on the side, so to speak, in the academic world? (laughs) Yeah, so I did publish a book. It's How Health Innovators Maximize Market Success. It's a number one bestseller on Amazon. So anybody in the audience can check it out there. And I also have a podcast and video show called The Health Innovator Show. And then I published my dissertation is all around commercializing technology innovation in healthcare. And so really everything that I do is around this particular phenomenon of, you know, different strategies and tactics and frameworks around helping people make better decisions in that commercialization process. I'm also a professor of marketing and a professor in the MBA program at the Jack Welch Management Institute, and then a professor of coaching and consulting for organizations at Palm Beach Atlantic University and also gender leadership. It's incredible, Roxy. I obviously understand quite a bit about what you've been doing, but for the benefit of our listeners, was it the academic journey that opened your mind to the challenges in healthcare and health tech, or was it something else that motivated you to specialize or focus in, in healthcare and health technology? Great question. So I've actually been in the field of marketing, a marketing practitioner for a little over 20 years. And I didn't start off in healthcare. I worked with an entrepreneur and innovator in the early 2000s that had five healthcare brands, some of which I helped build from scratch. And that's really where I started to kind of sink my teeth into healthcare. And before that, had you asked me if I would be interested in marketing healthcare products and services, I would have said absolutely not. I mean, just traditionally, I'm much more of like the purple cow, sign upside down kind of thought leader. And so healthcare was just very boring, very traditional, conservative. We've made a lot of strides there, but you know, a lot of smiling nurse and pharmacy images, black, white, and gray logos, and just really boring. And so I worked with this innovator in these five healthcare brands. I We were doing some really revolutionary stuff. We were building out pay for performance business models before the Affordable Care Act had to even come out. And so I just saw like, wow, we're really onto something. And I started to see that healthcare was going to be transformed and going to be looking for people that were experts from other industries to bring a lot of those marketing business practices into the industry. And so that's really where it started to be much more exciting. And ever since then, I've been in healthcare and haven't really looked back since. 
Yeah, it's a type of industry that the deeper you go, the more you can see the problems and the opportunities to really make a difference and make an impact. I I hear that a lot with startup founders, that aspiration towards making an impact. And I think healthcare via health technology and digital health is an incredibly transformative opportunity to bring that relationship between the real world, let's say the material world and the digital world into a much more powerful experience for all of us, including the health professionals as well. And that's a big motivation as far as my involvement in the industry. You mentioned earlier a statistic around 95% of innovations failing. Why are they failing? Gosh, how much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) Why do we pick the top three? I would say the number one reason I think in what research shows is that the reasons why innovators fail is because they don't build an early adoption strategy. When they're building their strategy and they're looking at their targeting or market segmentation, they are maybe segmenting based upon patients, providers, payers, et cetera, right? Or different therapies in a particular market. But they're really not building that strategy with that early adoption lens And when you do, there's a number of different implications. So how you would describe your ideal client profile within that targeting strategy is very different when you have your early adopter lens on it. Your value proposition is going to be framed in a different way. So there's just a lot of different decisions that you will make when you have the early adoption lens. And quite frankly, it's very rare that I talk to an innovator that already has that mindset. I think that in a lot of ways, there's maybe a knowledge gap around some of the theory and academic principles that are applied in practice. And you kind of touched on this a little bit. I mean, I think that the sweet spot is going to be this incredible immersion between academic and theory and what we learn in research and then in those more controlled environments and then what we're seeing in real world business practice. But the early adoption lens, I would say, is just absolutely the number one. Number two, I would say, is we aren't normally co-creating our solutions with our target customers. We tend to, as innovators, have a lot of ego and have a lot of assumptions of what we believe the target audience needs and wants. And so we come up with our solutions without involving in a process. And so we'll build something. And then at some point, we might decide to take it to the market. And then if we're going to ask them what they think, we're leading with a lot of confirmation bias. We're looking for them just to agree that they love what we want to bring to market. And sometimes they will tell us that, but when it comes to actually exchanging their hard-earned dollars for what it is that we have to sell, it becomes a very different story. So being able to co-create with our target customers or not doing that is, a, is an issue. Being able to do it is kind of a, a pathway to success. I could go on, but I'm going to pause there. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think, you know, I think they're two really big issues. And I think, yes, we can definitely go into a little bit of nuance further down the list. But I, I think that the concept of the early adopter isn't well understood, I think, for a lot of startup founders and even healthcare service providers, because innovation doesn't necessarily need to be confined to producing software or a med tech device. It could actually be the way that the service experience is being offered to the consumer or the recipient of healthcare services as well. I think we focus too much on thinking that innovation is how we can do a moonshot or something like that that involves a a great deal of technical complexity and disruption, so to speak, in order to achieve it. But I think process innovation is something that is more easily attainable and I think low-hanging fruit for the system of healthcare, especially when it comes to designing consumer journeys and improving the way that a consumer can interact with the healthcare system through the whole continuity of their 
service experience. And that's kind of low-hanging fruit. But if we don't know who we're designing for and how to engage with those people, then that's a bit of a challenge because I think the idea of the early adopter needs to be understood differently from the idea of perhaps where the market will be once we hit a later majority in terms of size and scale of the addressable market. Do you want to break down those contexts? I think you talk a lot about it and you've written quite interesting papers around it as well. Let's describe the difference between, let's say, the early adopter, and I know there's other segmentation beyond that, but let's just generalise and say early adopters and then afterwards. What are the characteristic differences between those two types of customers? Yeah, so the early adopters, I would say, kind of comprise the 16%, the 2.5% of the innovators, and then the 13.5% of the early adopters. Like you said, I just kind of wrap them together and call them the early adopters. And those are the people that they're looking for something that's new and exciting and never been done before. They're the ones that are going to tinker around with technology that maybe isn't fully developed yet. Now, let me just preface that that I'm not talking about these people wanting to do something that's not safe or effective in healthcare with patients, right? So that's, that certainly is really important. But you're looking for people that want to leapfrog the competition by doing something that no one else is doing. Once you cross that chasm and you get into the mainstream market, which is kind of the next to the early majority and late majority, those folks, they will not touch anything that is new and different and never been done before. So your targeting is really different, but your messaging strategy is also needs to be really different. And so these are the people where they want to know that something is an industry standard. They want to know that something is proven. They want to see majority or a lot of their peers that have used this or applied it before they test it out themselves. I think the other thing that's really key here is I kind of just skipped over crossing the chasm that you really would have an early adoption strategy. You would have a strategy for crossing the chasm, and then you would have another strategy for the mainstream market. And part of what we've got to do early on is that when we get those early adopters, those raving fan customers, well, one, we need to make sure that they have a positive post-purchase experience. And then we want to put strategies and tactics in place to help facilitate that word of mouth marketing, because that's what's actually going to help you cross over that 16%, cross over that chasm and get into the mainstream market. So there's a lot of things that we need to do to make sure that we're helping ourselves grow and continue to penetrate the market into the other segments. That's a great summary, Roxy. And and we'll come back to the founder issues in a moment because I'd I'd really like to keep moving down this thread with the early adopter side of it. So you mentioned the terms co-create and co-design, and that comes up a lot as a consistent theme in legacy DNA and a lot of what you advocate for when you're consulting and advising health tech and health provider startups on their journey. Explain the concepts through from your perspective and why are they preferable to alternative ways that people try and actually enter new markets? So majority of the time when innovators are building out their technology, they're doing it with the team members that are internal within their organization, right? So they've got R&D teams, maybe marketing teams, product development, management teams, and all of the ideas of what problem they're going to solve, how that solution should be configured. That's mostly happening within the internal team. What I am advocating for is co-creating with external team members. And going beyond, so if you do have innovators that are embracing co-creation, most of the time they are thinking about it as co-design and they're just saying like, hey, I built this 
and I want to know what you think about it. So again, it's that whole confirmation bias. And so what I advocate for is this five co's of co-creation that says, whoa, 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 whoa. How about as innovators, we kind of put our ego down and we say, okay, the customer's rule, what they say actually trumps anything I say, even though that I own the company and I'm the CEO or running the company. And I give them an equal seat at the table. And I say that I'm going to have all my customer stakeholder groups involved in this process. And we're going to talk really as early on as co-ideation. And we're going to ideate around these problems and solutions and brainstorm. And then I'm going to co-evaluate, right? So I'm going to take all of these ideas of the things that we could do, and I'm going to allow those customers to help us narrow down what are the things that we could do that maybe would be more viable and more feasible. And then we get to the co-design process. So we said co-ideate, co-evaluate, co-design, and now we're going to co-test. And then another piece, the, the fifth co that I think is really missing is we're going to to co-launch. So even if we're thinking about co-creation and we maybe involve them in the technology itself, it usually stops there. And so there's a huge opportunity for us to involve them in developing those marketing materials and becoming influencers in the marketplace and helping us really spread the word and secure those early adopters that we were talking about before. Yeah, it's a great summary. And thanks for breaking that down because I think that is a really important and valuable piece of insight and wisdom that listeners could take away from this discussion. Also, that obviously be able to access it by engaging with you and talking through their respective innovation ideas and opportunities. It's a really important part of why I felt the need to create Health Tech X, actually, the whole co create, co design in that order. And thirdly, yeah. code launch. And I know that you're a big fan of the co launch idea as well. And we'll, we'll break that down in a moment. We're so enamored with that theory that we actually incorporated it into our branding design. So, you know, our X in our logo is supposed to represent four distinct people or organizations that can meet in the middle in order to co-create, co-design and co-launch. And those four perspectives are innovative healthcare providers, innovative developers, subject matter experts such as yourself and investors. And I think investors need to be part of it because when you think about the perspectives, there's a lot of specialization in our modern economies. And so a health professional is very specialized in the areas of healthcare. A software developer or a hardware engineer is very specialized in what they do. Advisors are looking at life through an area of theoretical or academic and even experiential specialization. And investors trying to make it all work financially. And that's a really important part of it because you can sort of embark on an exercise where either you're too one-eyed about it and you're not doing enough co-creation. And that goes down into some of those founder issues that I want to circle back to because I think it's a really important part of where I think a lot of failure occurs in innovation. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to know your thoughts on it. But we can go too far the other way as well, can't we, where we actually over-design or over-specify, over-service the customer in this particular example, and we don't have a financially sustainable model. What's been your experience in that regard in trying to get that balance right between providing great value from the lens of co-create and co-design, but not continue to dig a hole for yourself that you can never come out of and obviously fail because you're just not financially sustainable? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say that co-creating is in some ways, it's a lot easier 
And I don't understand why we don't just do it more often because we don't have to come up with all these ideas on our own, right? Like why not involve them in the process? But also in a lot of ways, it's really difficult. I can tell you like as an innovator myself, I want to get to market fast. And it feels like I'm going to be slowed down tremendously. If I got to slow down, wait till customers have time to give me feedback. And then I've got to do extra work of aggregating and making something meaningful drawing meaningful conclusions from this data. And I want to move fast. And and honestly, I'll be really candid with you and say that I, you know, innovated something last year and I did not co-create with my target customers. And I had one of my team members and said, you know, I was wondering, Roxy, why didn't we ask our customers what they thought? You know, we I realized that we're getting ready to launch this and we never asked them one time. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just throw my own theory right in my face, why don't you? <laughs> it's really, really hard to put this into practice because we just feel like we've got the intuition. We feel like we've got all the answers and we just want to, at least for me and one of my experiences, like, I just want to go so fast. I feel like there's this window of opportunity. And if I slow down and do all of these things, I'm going to miss it. My competitors are going to get there before me. Like I said, I think it takes a lot of humility and a lot of patience. Going back to the features and functionality, this is something that I see way, way too often is that, again, because my personal identity is maybe tied to this baby that I'm building, I want to make it very robust and beautiful. And so I'm just jamming as many features and functionality that I possibly can in here because I want to be wowed by it. I want my target customers to be wowed by it and come to find out what happens is I got all these features and functionality that the target audience doesn't want. And I've spent millions of dollars on it. I may have spent an extra six months making sure that we had all this in there. And now I have no money to actually launch and go to market, but I put $5 million in my product. And so, you know, if we can be smarter about our product roadmap and our product configuration and what is that, I mean, you know, we talk about lean, but what is that lean configuration that I need for just those early adopters and then get the real world experience and feedback on, then I can have a lot more resources in for that commercialization and that launch process. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really important lesson and, and I appreciate you sharing the vulnerability that we all face as human beings to basically think that our idea is solid without actually consulting for the people who we're actually doing it for. And I, I it's think that's embarrassing, but it's true. <laughs> I did it. You're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> I mean, I probably legitimately did like a co-creation workshop or speaking event and then went in and started building the product without my customers. I mean Oh, goodness gracious. It, it takes a lot of work because we are creatures of habit and, and you know, we sort yeah. of have these layers. And I think this is kind of a good segue back into that founder discussion mm-hmm. that you touched on at the outset. Use the word ego. And as I was sort of thinking about some of the questions I wanted to ask you today, the word ego did pop into my mind. And then I sort of thought, well, you know, is that the right way to put it? And I think, I think it is the only way to put it. I've experienced this personally, how the ego takes a hold and, you know, you think you've got all the answers and you want to show your brilliance, you know, in having researched it and thought it through and reached a logical conclusion that makes perfect sense. 
only to find that the person that you're actually trying to offer a product to doesn't agree with you. It's- and you're just like, they're idiots. They just don't get it. <laughs> no, no, no. They're not no, ready no. yet, you know. <laughs> Let's give it another 10 yeah. years, you know, that, you know, they'll catch up. Well, that's what I hear when you yeah. kind of start to segue into the founder's blues, if you will. I mean, it's kind of like you start to heal where, well, the reason I failed is because I was ahead of the market. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's probably true sometimes. Sometimes I think it is true, but I think it's a very expensive truth to pursue and try and be right on because mm-hmm. you're likely to run out of money and 95% of the time you will. That's the bet that you're making. So it just seems like an even more rational thing to do would be to actually just say, look, unless I'm the customer that I'm designing for, it kind of doesn't matter what I think. What matters is being a servant to channeling the information that my customer, my prospective customer or addressable market is so willing to share with me because they've got problems, they've got opportunities and they need help. And if we can actually just tap into that and start to hear it, then our expertise can start to flourish because we can then reflect that back through that co-create ideation phase to actually say, so is this what you mean? So is this what you're talking about? Is this a fair representation of what you think would actually achieve the outcome? And then get all that validation and feedback along the way and just stay really open-minded constantly to just be a receiver of information rather than trying to steer it, course correct it, adjust it. It's kind of, it's all about just being able to actually receive and translate and using your skills and capabilities as an innovator to turn it into a product and keep that customer as closely attuned to it. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I also think that, you know, so there's benefits. We're kind of scratching the surface around the benefit of having a third party advisor, right? Is somebody that's external to the company that sees things that we don't see when we're in it, right? You and I all day long could preach and coach and advise around certain principles when we're talking to other founders and other innovators. And we might find ourselves falling into the same traps within our own businesses. So, you know, this is nothing new, but, you know, having those people that are external to kind of speak that truth into us and be the sounding board, I call it a thinking partner, is so critically important. And so then as we're talking about the co-creation piece, I think that having a third party facilitate that market research, that customer discovery doesn't mean that the client or the innovator cannot be involved in that process, but having someone that is external, that doesn't have any skin in the game, right? That has no assumptions or biases around whether this is going to be a good idea or not use them to be able to help validate those ideas, validate demand for the solution that you want to bring to market, I think is really critical because sometimes we may go, yeah, 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 I'm going to do customer discovery and I'm going to involve my target customers, but we might design that engagement in such a way to where it's really the data is misrepresented or it's misinterpreted to kind of in unintentionally see in the data what we want to see in it. So just like our business strategy, even our co-creation strategy can also use some third-party folks that are involved in that process to kind of keep us straight. Yeah, I think that's really key. And I'm glad you brought that up. It's, It's definitely an important part of checking yourself by having surrounding yourself with people who can see where potentially that ethos or culture that you're trying to develop. Because I think a big part of getting a startup set up for success is actually getting the culture right from the beginning. And I also think, you know, the the founders are very critical in the type of people that you decide to become a co-founder with. I think that kind of recruiting exercise, getting the right chemistry and synergy at a skill capability matrix, but also overcoming those ego hurdles. And I think the way to achieve that is through getting support through mentors, coaches, advisors to lay the foundations of cultural success so that the methodology, the approach to the work, so to speak, is poured as early as possible. 
And it's not something that we sort of find we may have been three to 5% lucky in terms of being able to succeed just by happenstance, being in the right place, right time. And then sort of, you know, five years later, realize that you've got a whole world of problems within the system of your business that you can't actually scale out of unless you spend a ton of money on it, potentially even have to see some people get made redundant and moved out of the business in order to make that work. So I think culture is absolutely key to get right as soon as possible. And I don't think you can get there just by having a great idea. You've got to bring in the wisdom and experience and immerse yourself in it, synergize it as early as possible. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And I advocate for the co-creation to be knitted into the culture from day one, that that's just what we do, right? We don't conduct market research or customer discovery interviews at this one moment in time. It's not a project that we do. And then we park those results to the side. It's something that we believe and that we embrace and that we're consistently doing. And we will never stop that co-creation process until we close our doors, right? Because we're always going to be co-creating, co-launching what's next. It would be kind of this circular cycle that would happen from one co to the next co and just an ongoing part of the culture. I think that it's a really important point that you make because culture, we do have to start that really from day one. A lot of times innovators, I think, kind of think more along the lines of like, that's a phase two in the business. Let me get the technology going. Let me get some sales in the door and start getting some cash flow, which obviously is very important as well. But creating the culture And like you said, the people that you hire, those early team members help shape that culture. It's just so critical. It's the foundation of the business. It really is. And it's a really important lesson that you learn after some battle scars on the way through. So it's kind of, I see it because I talk to young, enthusiastic startup entrepreneurs in the Health Tech X community every other day. And I can see that there's a significant percentage where the enthusiasm for the idea is way exceeding just the calm that's needed to just slow it down, slow it down and just concentrate on what really matters here and really connect with the customer and develop that empathetic relationship and engage them into the process of building or designing a product. That's a really important success factor as far as I'm concerned. I actually use it as a qualifier if I'm looking to work with people. If I find that ego representation is just way too early, it's just, it's not ready. I don't want to engage with it. I'll provide some pretty direct feedback, but I think it, you know, what we say in Australia here is it might need another footy season before that person (laughs) settles down. So just a little bit more time for that person to kind of just reach that point within their own mind where they sort of start to get they're really trying to help me. They're really trying to give me some feedback here that's going to save me 10 years because I'm, I'm smart. I'll figure it out. It would, yes, I'll get there. But the cost of 10 years of learning in this life, in this day, is way too expensive when you can actually get there perhaps within two or three years. And I think that's not spoken about a lot in the innovation cycle where the opportunity cost of letting the ego drive the startup, aside from the high risk of failure, even if you do start getting going, and you start to bootstrap your way, or perhaps you've raised some capital and you've been lucky in that area. It's a really expensive quasi PhD, so to speak, in startup management, where you know you can actually just learn that from people who have already been there, done that, and have made the mistake, so to speak, and have actually learned the wisdom of why it's better to do it the other way. What are your thoughts? I can't agree with you more. And I think that it's probably more critical than ever because things are changing so rapidly, right? So with COVID, we've got different work structures, right? I came across a book 
one of the VPs of LinkedIn just published a book recently called Workquake. And so he's describing how not just COVID, but COVID certainly been a big part of it has caused a lot of seismic shifts in trends and changes within the organization. So how we lead and how we create culture and build companies and build sustainable companies and grow them in a virtual world is going to be very different or in a hybrid world is going to be very different. And then since COVID, we've got so many demands from employees that have changed really drastically. So how we're going to be attracting people and retaining people is going to be different. So there's just a lot for the leadership team and the founder a lot of hats for them to have to wear. So you really need to be able to surround yourself with experts around all of these different facets that we're talking about in order to be successful. And, you know, frankly, I think that it is more important in healthcare than ever because we're talking about lives that are at stake. And so when you talk about how, oh, well, you know, in 10 years and what that might do in the impact to the business, but even thinking about the impact of the missed opportunity of the people that have a, a poorer quality of life or lose their life because your innovation wasn't taken to the market with the most commercialization expertise. And so we're really doing ourselves a disservice and really being able to transform healthcare and the lives of the people that need it, which is really all of us all around the world. Well, we really saw the power of early adoption last year, you know, 2020, where in healthcare, for example, pivoting away from in-person healthcare service delivery into online in some format, whether it was video, whether it was voice, whether it was chat or a combination of the above and some collaboration tools, whether it was that kind of, you know, basic telehealth kind of capability. Everybody became an early adopter all of a sudden <laughs> and things well, moved. There's nothing like a global pandemic to help accelerate <laughs> that business. So if you, you know. <laughs> it kind of, it kind of moved it forward, but we also saw that there was quite a lot of I'm going to use the word elasticity. I'm not sure whether that's an appropriate term, but there was a lot of snapback by the majority when restrictions eased and things seemingly went back to normal. And, you know, so what we saw is that habits are hard to change and it takes time and persistence. And I think that's another value proposition for being able to identify the early adopters because they will embrace the change and actually move in that direction. And I think that's happening on both sides of, in general terms, the marketplace, because we have on the one hand in healthcare, we have the demand side in all of its nuanced expressions. But on the other side, we have the supply side in all of its let's say, reciprocal nuanced expressions to be able to meet the demand. And so the characteristics of those markets are changing very rapidly where there's a lot going on right now. This is not just about restrictions of movement. This is also about people sort of reevaluating their philosophies, their preferred way of living, their quality of life. Mm -hmm. When we have very high demand for healthcare, I think it's fair to say in the Western world, demand is exceeding supply then we have to think about how we're able to scale the actual delivery of healthcare services. And I think the avenue for that is digital and going down the path of digital health innovation and figuring out how to scale healthcare in a way that actually provides a really good work-life balance for the healthcare professionals in how they're actually inputting into the economy of healthcare and meets the needs and demands of the consumer who perhaps is starting to rethink where they live, how they live, what they really need in their lives, how important their relationships are, et cetera. And that's going to cause a lot of opportunity, I think, as well as some challenges that we have to deal with. What are your thoughts or observations on this? I think as human beings, we are rethinking almost everything. 
prior to COVID. And we're still in this process. I don't think that we've already rethought through everything. It's like we're still in the process and it is going to disrupt businesses like we've never seen before. When we think about like leadership and hiring, there's more people that don't want to work that maybe have like government subsidies, right? To be able to keep them comfortable for longer, or maybe they don't want to work because they don't feel like it's safe, or they just decided that, you know what, I got this taste of working from home and I don't want to go back for work. So our hiring practices have to evolve. You know, I cannot tell you how many companies and brands reached out to us around the end of last year and said, you know, we decided that with COVID, you know, we really aren't doing anything in digital. We need to start marketing ourselves and our and our companies and our products digital because the trade shows have all dried up. And it's like, oh my gosh, good God, it's 2020 and you're just thinking about investing in digital marketing. That's what's happening, right? And some of those same people we're having conversations with now is they're starting to open up these trade shows again and starting to, you know, fly around the country and have some more of these face-to-face visits. And they're going, okay, well, we're not sure we need to invest in digital marketing anymore. (laughs) Maybe we just go back to our old strategy prior to COVID. And, you know, the same thing with sales, the same thing with so many different things. And I think the companies and the founders and the innovators that win in the long run are the ones that are going to be paying attention to these trends and being able to, what does Wayne Gretzky say, um, you know, skate to where the puck is going and not the ones that are sitting there holding their breath and waiting for everything to kind of go back to where it was before COVID so that they wait, they can get to their business as usual. That is a recipe for failure. And we've got to pay attention to the changes that are happening at all levels of our business. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's very good advice. And I think it's kind of a strength that can be developed for a founder. It's actually to be able to have that kind of, I'm not sure what the right term for it is, but that sort of finger on the pulse, that sense of the zeitgeist, the feel yeah. of what's happening yeah. and be able to course correct. You know, there's a popular word we use in the industry called pivot. And I know you talk a lot about that. Tell me about why you think having a strategy around pivoting is so important because you do you do advocate for that don't you you're a big proponent of sort of building strategy with the pivot in mind yeah so we have a pivot kit that we created at the early stages of the pandemic because you know kind of predicting right that whole sensing thing that you're talking about that organizations are going to have to pivot their businesses most of them will at some level now i think prior to the pandemic there were business pivots, right? So it's not like you're only going to potentially pivot your business because of a global pandemic. And not all pivots are bad, right? So it doesn't mean that you failed because you're pivoting your business. And I think that the pivots come in different sizes. There's big pivots and there's little pivots. So, you know, we might go in with the assumption of a specific target audience and we might build a strategy around that. We get into, maybe we even do some customer discovery and we get into the real world and we see that things aren't going the way we intended. And we realize that we need to pivot to a different target market, or maybe we need to pivot our product configuration, pivot our sales and marketing strategy, pivot our hiring strategy, just so many different pivots that we need to look at. And so what I'm a big advocate for is this kind of an agile approach to strategy planning and strategy management and in evaluating these different areas of the business to be able to see if there are any pivots that need to happen and where and being able to do that 
in a more proactive manner. So there's a, a tool that's, I think, free on our website that is available for people that are exploring pivots to be able to help them kind of map out what is their current market strategy and what are these different pivot opportunities. Because I also say like not all pivots are equal. And a lot of times we have many different new paths that we could take. So how do we determine which pivot path is going to be the best one for us? Which one is going to maybe get us to market faster that's going to generate, have higher profit margins? And so this is a tool that I developed to kind of help those leaders and organizations as a team wrestle with those different ones and then be able to kind of figure out like a rating and ranking system to be able to identify, well, what is their new best pivot path going forward with some clarity and some confidence? Yeah, I love that. And I think that whole ranking and prioritizing is another one of those successful cultural habits that you can institutionalize into your innovation or into your startup as the case may be, because there are mature businesses that would do innovation as well and explore some new markets accordingly. It's a great opportunity to sort of reflect on what do we need to focus on the most, getting those right habits into the business as soon as possible so that the founders are literally pouring the foundation of success into the people that come next, the layers of employees and, and the organizational structures that evolve from that point onwards. So it's a really critical time in, in, in so many different ways. If I could ask you how you see the future, I'd, I like to kind of, you know, project mm. each guest's perspective on this because we are about, at a high level anyway, how we're reimagining healthcare to the extent that it needs to be reimagined. If you kind of have things your way, Roxy, what's healthcare and health tech going to look like over the next five to 10 years? You know, it's so funny. Immediately, the picture <laughs> that comes to mind is the Jetsons. <laughs> do you remember that cartoon? I do. That's what I want the future to be like, you know, just pushing buttons and making stuff happen. No, seriously. So my 92-year-old grandmother moved in with us a few years ago. What I envision is a much more robust digital health home for her to be able to have the best quality of life for whatever years she has left. And for me as a caregiver to be able to be tuned in without having to be present all the time, to be able to advocate for her and proactively make sure that I'm able to monitor and make sure she's getting the best care. And right now here in the States, we have Best Buy and Best Buy Health is on the forefront. But I envision being able to go to a Best Buy type store, be able to see all of the aging at home, wearable, remote monitoring kind of widgets for me to choose from, just like you can with washers and dryers and TVs and, you know, stereos. And did I say stereo? Do people even have stereos now? <laughs> um, but you know what I mean? We've got you stereo know, sound. <laughs> right. All the widgets <laughs> that we can choose from and, and be able to kind of like demo them and try them out and kind of just digitize our house like you would a smart home. But for healthcare, for my grandmother, because I'm not putting her in assisted living place, she's going to live here until she takes her last breath. And I want her to be able to live well. And I feel like there's a certain responsibility that I have being in this industry. I talk to innovators that are in developing some incredible stuff every week. It still seems a bit of a stretch for me to have this one-stop shop for me to go to, to kind of figure out all of the different options that I could choose from and then just have it delivered and installed and be done with it. Are you, are you going to create it for me? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope, I hope our community will have some way towards that. We have a vision statement, which is a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. 
So I think your vision fits within the context of that as a potential opportunity for startup founders within HealthTechX to provide some of the tools that are needed in order to kit out a modern home and offer it. I need an Amazon for home health, like an an Amazon for digital health. (laughs) And I hope that we start to see more investment in tools for caregivers to be able to help transform healthcare, especially at home. That's a really great vision. I can certainly connect with that as a very realizable possibility. I don't think it's way out into the future. I think we've got the tools. We just need the Mm -hmm. cultural Mm -hmm. innovation to kind of move in that direction with consumers obviously being willing to embrace it. I think a good assumption there that we are because we are consuming other goods and services within our home and we're integrating it more and more into our home lives. So why can't healthcare be one of the verticals that we kind of, you know, install within a modern home. In fact, we might even design our homes in the future when we're building to incorporate healthcare such as treatment rooms and really support itinerant healthcare workers coming into our home space. We've seen a trend over the years with putting pools in and gymnasiums and sort of supporting exercise. And uh, our kitchens have become places that are conducive towards the way we like to nourish ourselves. So why not have an expansion on that idea and have treatment rooms and therapy rooms to allow the healthcare edge to interact with our living edge as well. So uh, I think it's a great idea. I really appreciate coming along today, Roxy, and sharing your enthusiasm and your expertise, an abundant set of knowledge that you've accrued over the years. You've got fantastic resources on your website. I'll make sure there are links in our show notes to get people to come back and interact and potentially engage with you. And I know you're a very enthusiastic consultant and advisor for healthcare and health tech innovators as well. So really appreciate you coming along today and thank you for your time. Thank you so much. It's been a very rich and fun discussion. So thank you for having me today. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you liked what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.